are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. So let's give our attention to God's Word. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse... 46. Hear the word of our God. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's pray. Father, we are a people who are are needy of you. The psalmist instructs us, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Father, we rejoice in the fact that you are a God who forgives. With you, there is forgiveness of sins. And if you would mark iniquities, no one could stand in your presence. And so what do we do as your people? Well, we wait for you. The psalmist tells us, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning. More than a watchman for the morning. And so we we wait upon you, Lord God, and we we pray, won't you bring your mercy near to us once again in the preaching of the word? Won't you make Christ present and clear to us today? Won't you remind us of his mercy and his grace and his kindness? And won't you teach us again how to call upon his name? We rejoice in you, O God. You are the God of redemption. You are the God of forgiveness. We pray that you would do your work this morning, that you would lead us into salvation. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So the first words of our text this morning, and they came to Jericho. As we consider the first words in our text this morning, and they came to Jericho, these these words might not strike us with, with much importance. We've heard many geographical locations listed in the Gospel of Mark so far. We've heard of places like Caesarea Philippi, Tyre, Sidon, Capernaum, Nazareth, Galilee, Jerusalem. And if we're honest this morning, we're probably a bit confused. Why? Because we're not very familiar with the the geography of ancient Israel. All these places get, get muddled in our minds. However, if you were to trace out Jesus' journey, starting in Mark chapter 8, 
Caesarea Philippi to where we are now, you would immediately recognize the importance of these words that Mark tells us, and they came to Jericho. Jericho is the last stop on the way to Jerusalem, only about a day's walk from the great city. So if you've been paying attention to the story so far, this, this story that Mark's telling us about Jesus has been building up to this point for quite some time. All that Jesus has been preaching about in the Gospel of Mark, his suffering, his, his death, his suffering, his crucifixion, is all going to happen in Jerusalem. Chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. As I was studying this text and thinking about the geography, trying to figure out the significance of these words, I was reminded of my early years in elementary school. And at the end of each semester, we would always go on a field trip. And these were always the most anticipated days of the year as a, a young child. Why? Because we didn't have to sit in the desks. We didn't have any lessons to learn. We weren't threatened with any homework. And so we could just go off and we could play and we could go to interesting places. And always a part of our field trips growing up was a long bus ride. I grew up in northwestern Wisconsin, and if you wanted to go anywhere fun, if you wanted to see anything interesting, you'd have to travel about two hours. And so they would cram all of us kids onto buses, and there we would go off. Now, there's a ritual that was integral to every field trip we went on just before we arrived at our destination. Usually the, the sternest teacher among the group of teachers would stand up on the bus and give us final instructions. And the, the talk would always go something like this. Now, now, remember how you act and behave today. It doesn't just represent you, but it represents the, the school district of Webster. So follow instructions today to the best of your ability and be on your, your best behavior possible. So there's these teachers and there's a hundred of us kids ready to spring out of the bus and they're just hoping to leverage these last few minutes before we reach our destination for the good of our morals, for the good of our behavior. And so here we are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 46. We're in Jericho with Jesus and his disciples and we have been on the bus with Jesus for 10 chapters. We've traveled with Jesus and we've observed so much about Jesus. We've watched him heal the crowds. We've seen the scenes where Jesus has called his disciples to himself. We've witnessed the casting out of demons. We've heard his parables. We've heard the predictions of the cross. And here we are one last stop before Jerusalem. Here we are a day's journey from the end. And what are the final instructions that Mark gives us? What is, it Mark that want, what is it that Mark wants us to get straight before we get off the bus and enter into Jerusalem with Jesus? Well, it's this story of blind Bartimaeus and how Jesus meets this man's needs. And as we think about this story, it should strike us a bit funny. For final instructions, we would expect Jesus to stand up and give an emotional speech to his disciples, a speech that would rally them to faith, a speech that would fortify his three passion predictions, a speech that would pull together all of his instructions about service and suffering. Or we might expect that Mark as a narrator would, would pull us aside and give us explicit instructions about how to read and think through the events in Jerusalem. 
We might expect a, a parenthesis where Mark directs his attention towards us. Instead of what we, we might expect, well, we find the healing of blind Bartimaeus in Jericho, just outside of Jerusalem. But if we take up this story of blind Bartimaeus and what Jesus does to this man, if we can consider it carefully, we'll find what we need here. Because there are last-minute instructions here but we have to look at them carefully. Now, before we dive into the details of our text, we, we need to ask an important question, and this is going to set us up. What is Mark trying to get done with these last-minute details? What is he trying to accomplish with the story of blind Bartimaeus? If, if Mark is that teacher standing up on the bus, giving the last-minute instructions, what is he exhorting us to? Where, he is, he, where is he pushing us towards? What's he trying to get done? And so we can take a step outside of Mark and look at the whole of the New Testament. And the New Testament helps us understand what Mark is trying to do. And the matter of first importance that you find in the pages of the New Testament is this. It's the right confession of Jesus. So we look at the letter of 1 John. And in 1 John, John, this this wise pastor, is, is giving his attention to the people of God. And he's prescribing this litmus test for his children. He says this in chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Well, what is John doing here? Well, he's saying you, you can actually tell if someone is under the influence of the Spirit of God. And, and you can tell by how that person will, will speak about Jesus. If they say correct things about Jesus, you can, you can know that Spirit's at work in them. But if they say false things about, this, about Jesus, we can understand that's not the work of the Spirit of God. And John's not the only one concerned with this matter. We, we find Paul using the same exact logic in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul speaks to the Corinthians saying, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the, the Holy Spirit. So we find the same logic at work in, in Paul. Right confession of Jesus matters. And that's how you can tell if they're actually a Christian. How you can tell if the Spirit of God's actually at work in them. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And these are intriguing statements as we consider John, as we consider Paul. Because if you know the early church and the situation that they were, were facing, they were facing all sorts of pressing needs. Just think about the context of the New Testament. The church was experiencing persecution politically from the Romans. They're experiencing persecution ethnically from the Jews. Even more, the, the church had expanded greatly across the Roman Empire. It was, it was growing like a weed, and the church was in great need of institutionalization. Growth can have problems as well. Men and women needed to be trained up in gospel ministry so the work could carry on. And of, and of course, when you read the New Testament, there's always issues of poverty and morality to consider. But the issue that we find the apostles devoting themselves to again and again and again is the matter of Jesus' identity. The matter of first importance. And the apostles did this for good reason. They understood that at the heart of Christianity was the identity of Jesus. 
And they understood that the, the perseverance of the church, the institution of the church, the ethics of the church mean nothing if the church has lost its grip, its firm grip on the saving identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we examine the apostolic preaching of Jesus recorded in the New Testament, we, we hear this refrain again and again and again. Paul cuts to the heart of his preaching in Romans chapter 10, 9. What is the thrust of Paul's preaching? Well, it's this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul ties right confession of Jesus to salvation. And it's this refrain that Peter concludes his, his stunning Pentecost sermon with. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Peter reviews redemptive history and he makes this conclusion. What, is, what has God been doing throughout history? What does it lead, it lead us to see? Well, Peter says this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And from this pronouncement, Jesus, Jesus turns his attention towards the, or Peter turns his attention towards the crowds, and he calls on them to act on the name of Jesus. He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so here we have the contemporaries of Mark, the witness of the New Testament before us. And it should be no surprise to us that Mark, as he, as he puts together the stories, the sayings of Jesus into this narrative, he would reflect this apostolic concern. And we can say this, Mark writes, he, he narrates so that we, his readers, would come to this end. That we would confess with our mouths the identity of Jesus and believe in our hearts all that God has accomplished through him and in result be saved from our sins. This helps us make sense of what we're to do with this story that Mark has given us. When we read the Gospel of Mark, we, we cannot read it as an anthology of the life and sayings of Jesus. We cannot read it as the, the greatest hits of Jesus. But we have to read it as a, a carefully constructed manual that Mark has put together for us, teaching us how to confess Jesus and be saved from our sins. That's the point of this narrative. We can say this uh, another way. The many stories, the parables, the sayings of Jesus should not be read in isolation from each other. Rather, they're much like stepping stones. Mark has arranged the many stories. He's taken these parables, these sayings of Jesus, and he's, he has placed them like stones in a yard, like a path for us to follow. And as we travel on this path, we might stop here and there to admire a stone. And there are many beautiful stones placed in the Gospel of Mark. We might stop there and stare at that stone and look at its brilliance. But if you know anything about paths, if you know anything about stones, you know that a stone does not lead to itself. That's not the end of the journey. It's leading us somewhere. Each stone is meant to lead us to another stone. Each stone propels us to take another step down the path toward the end of the path, the final destination. We can say it again. Mark has laid this path and he is leading us to a destination that we might understand the, the fullness of Jesus' identity and then we might learn how to call upon him as our own savior and be saved from our sins. 
And so we can think about this path we've been traveling on, the stones that Mark has laid before us. It starts in, in Mark chapter 1. John, this great prophet, shows up. And what does he say? Well, he says this about Jesus. After me comes he who is mightier than I. That's a precious stone. But it, it leads us somewhere, and it leads us to the voice that addresses Jesus after his baptism. That says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And that stone leads us to the stone that, that when Peter cries out and says to Jesus, you are the Christ. And we are led to other stones when Jesus himself testifies about his identity. Jesus says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And so we've been traveling on this path, stone to stone to stone to stone. Then Mark tells us, Jericho, one last stone before we enter into Jerusalem. One last stone before we enter into the great city. And here's our last stone before Jerusalem, verses 46 through 48. Look there with me. Mark tells us, And as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples... And a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Here's the last stepping stone before Jerusalem. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to draw out six observations from these three verses and how they teach us about the identity of Jesus, and how they teach us to confess Jesus rightly. So our first observation is this. This is a surprising confession. So as we look at verses 46 through 48, Mark, Mark is taking pains to stress the one who confesses Jesus. And we get a, a considerable amount of detail about this man. Mark tells us this man's name. His name is Bartimaeus. And he tells us his father's name, Timaeus. And most importantly, Mark tells us that this man was a, a blind beggar sitting on the side of the road. And so we ask, well, who is, who is it that provides this last stepping stone on the way to Jerusalem? Well, it's Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar. And this is surprising. And it should be surprising because in the ancient world, this would not be the man you would have picked out as an ideal witness to tell us about Jesus. This man was poor. He was handicapped. He was irrelevant. Even more, this man was a nuisance. We see it in our, our text. There's Bartimaeus sitting on the side of the road. He, he's crying out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what does the crowd attempt to do with Bartimaeus? Well, they attempt to silence him and rebuke him. To the crowd, this man is just unwanted noise that they have to put up with, and their life would be better if they didn't have to listen to him. And as we think about it, the, the ideal witness would have been a scribe trained in the Scriptures or a respectable, wealthy man who could finance and promote Jesus' ministry. But the one who gives key testimony to the identity of Jesus is a man of no repute, a blind beggar. And Mark is striking a powerful point. He's telling us this is how the kingdom of God works. The scribes, these men trained in the scriptures, well, they're insulted by the ministry of Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. The rich, the respectable, they grow angry at Jesus. 
We already met a rich man. He did not like the call of Jesus to sell all that he had. The wise and the powerful, they cannot grasp a hold of the saving identity of Jesus. And even in our own day, university lectures, the cultural elite cannot pierce the, the mystery of the kingdom of God. Rather, the one who correctly sees and correctly applies Jesus to himself is who? It's the one who is blind, who's destitute of any worldly wealth. The one who sees Jesus is the one who is blind. And this surprising confession presses on us the reality of the kingdom. Mark is teaching us it is only those who cast off pride and assume the posture of a needy child who will receive the kingdom of God. It is only those who, who give up thinking that they are well and righteous and confess their sickness and sins who will receive the, the care of the doctor. It's only those who cast off worldly wisdom and assume the position of a blind beggar who will confess Jesus rightly. Mark is flipping everything on its head. The blind man sees Jesus for who he truly is. A surprising confession. Second, this is a, a public confession. The many stepping stones that we've traveled over so far in Mark's gospel have been hidden and secret from the public. Just think back to chapter 1. That voice speaks from heaven, the Father. What does the Father say? You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Father is speaking to the Son, and the people don't get what's going on there. Or we can think about the voice from heaven when the Father speaks a second time in, in chapter 9. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Well, who hears this? Well, it's Peter, James, and John. Or we can think about the confession of Peter in chapter 8, where Peter stands up and says, you are the Christ. Well, who hears that? Well, just the small number of Jesus' disciples. And even when we consider the Son of Man sayings where Jesus preaches... The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. These are, are, are cryptic, and the crowds can't penetrate their meaning. But here in chapter 10, just before we arrive in Jerusalem, the truth about Jesus is plainly proclaimed to all. Here, blind Bartimaeus, sitting alongside the road, is a preacher of the kingdom of God. And he's making known the mystery of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the Son of David. In Bartimaeus' confession we find a hint of what's actually going to take place in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, in the city of David, no longer will the messianic identity of Jesus, that Jesus is the king of Israel, no longer is this knowledge going to be hidden away. No longer is it going to be kept a secret, but it's going to be revealed for all to see. It's going to be revealed at the cross. There, Jesus is going to be crucified as the, the king of Israel. And all the authorities are going to proclaim him king of Israel in a very ironic way. But Mark is telling us a public confession is coming. A third observation is that this is a repeated confession. Mark could have told this story very differently. He could have simply reported Bartimaeus' urgent cry just once. Bartimaeus says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then he could have just moved on with the story. He could have got on to another matter. This is what Matthew does as he records this very same scene in his gospel. But Mark camps out here on this confession of Bartimaeus and repeats it again in our ears a second time. Son of David, have mercy on me. Even more, Mark stresses the repetition of this cry. Here is the crowd rebuking Bartimaeus and moving him to silence. 
But what does Bartimaeus do? Well, Mark tells us he cried out all the more. And so we get this picture of Bartimaeus on the side of the road saying again and again and again, son of David, son of David, son of David. And what Mark is doing is he's making a point and he's underlining it for us. He's like this, like a parent who won't let the four-year-old forget. And so he repeats again and again and again. Mark is like the teacher who knows how forgetful his students are, and so he repeats again and again and again. Mark understands at this point that Jesus is the son of David is vital to get across. And so he makes a point of it, and he underlines it, and he repeats it. Mark is telling us everything that Jesus will do and say, everything that Jesus will experience in the city of Jerusalem, from his suffering to his death to his resurrection, must be understood in light of this confession, Jesus, son of David. So it's a surprising confession. It's a public confession. It's a repeated confession. And fourth, it's a scriptural confession. And we have to ask, well, what is Bartimaeus talking about? What is Bartimaeus saying? What are the significance of these words? Bartimaeus says, son of David, have mercy on me. And Bartimaeus' surprising public confession signals a, a drastic change in the story of the Scriptures. The people of God were, were waiting and looking for the fulfillment of a specific hope, the coming of David's son. So if you go back to the Old Testament and, and you read the stories of the Old Testament, we come to this man, David, and he is appointed king of Israel. And the Lord gives this king of Israel a great promise. And the promise is this, that God is going to give him a son, and the son is going to reign over Israel. So we go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and the Lord speaks to David saying this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And the Old Testament story revolves around this promise. And when you read on from 2 Samuel chapter 7 into the rest of the Old Testament, there are a string of promises about this coming son, a coming king who's going to reign over all of Israel. The prophet Isaiah shows up and he preaches a message about a coming son. We know this text from Christmas. Isaiah preaches, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah is preaching to the people of God. A son of David is coming. He's going to sit on the throne of David. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. His kingdom will extend to all places. It's going to be a kingdom of righteousness and justice forever. So Jeremiah, another prophet, he shows up and he starts preaching to the people of God and he starts preaching about a coming son. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. What Jeremiah is saying is, 
right now in the present, things look pretty bad. The kingship of Israel, it's like a stump. But someday a branch is going to spring up. And it is this branch that you desperately need, the son of David. And why do you need him? Because this son of David is going to save Judah. And all the people of God are going to dwell securely in his reign. And Ezekiel, another prophet, shows up to the people of God and he prophesies about what? A a coming son. And, And he says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Ezekiel is looking out on the people of God and he's saying, You have a bunch of wicked shepherds leading your lives. But mark this, someday, one day, God is going to raise up a son of David and he will shepherd you so well. He's going to lead you into good pasture, and he's going to give you life. And so as we think about these promises from the Old Testament, we can see why Israel would be so concerned with the coming son of David. His arrival would not just be a great day, it would be the day, the ultimate day. The day when righteousness would flourish, when when justice would reign supreme, when wrongs would be righted, when salvation would overflow the boundaries of Israel, when the desires of the people of God would richly be satisfied, when peace would finally come to God's broken and cursed creation forever. And here, in Mark chapter 10, on the side of the road, in Jericho, in the midst of the crowd, blind Bartimaeus. What does he say? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the point cannot be any plainer for us as readers of Scripture. The great king has arrived. The great day has come. We don't have to look any further to find the son of 2 Samuel chapter 7. We don't have to look anymore for the anticipated son of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Mark preaches in our ears, behold the fulfillment of the Scriptures. The son of David has arrived. This one here, he's going to sit on on the throne of David. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And he will shepherd the people of God. And he shall execute justice. And salvation will come. Judah will be saved. And all of Israel will dwell securely. This is scriptural confession. Fifth. This is a needy confession. What happened on the side of the road was not the work of a a cool academic who finally pieced together the puzzle, nor was his confession that of a detached observer, like a a biblical scholar safely sitting at his desk piecing together the, the proof text. Rather, what we find pulsing through this confession is neediness. Bartimaeus makes this this confession. Jesus is the son of David, and then he says, Have mercy on me. And so here with the, the fulfillment of the scriptures before him, Bartimaeus recognized that there is only one appropriate response to the news of the fulfillment of the scriptures, and that is this, a cry for mercy. What we find in this text is, is Bartimaeus' knowledge of the scriptures is driving him to find the mercy and the grace of Jesus. And Bartimaeus is so helpful for us because we've received so much information about Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is the son of David. He is the Christ. He is the son of man. And now we learn that he is the son of David. And Bartimaeus teaches, what are we supposed to do with all of this information? How are we to handle it? How are we to use it? Well, Bartimaeus instructs us. True confession is not simply mouthing these words. 
True confession is not a, a magical incantation. Simply repeating the name of Jesus again and again and again will, will do you no good. Even more, true confession is not simply agreeing with words about Christ. Even more, true confession is not simply understanding these words about Christ. No, what we see in Bartimaeus is the truth of confession. True confession rises high above all of these things. True confession is a work that seizes upon the knowledge of Christ and will not let him go. True confession is driven by radical neediness of the soul. True confession is, is focused upon the excellent character of Jesus. True confession at its heart is a, a cry for mercy. This story is so good for us. It's so good for us because the story calls us to cast aside all formal religion. It calls us to cast aside mere acquaintance with Jesus. It calls us to cast aside knowledge from afar, knowledge that's cold and dull, and it bids us to cast ourselves directly upon the mercy of Jesus. True confession is crying out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the scriptures this morning are calling out to us. They're, they're checking in on our confession and they're asking, do you only know Christ from a distance? Do you only know Christ as a mere fact among other facts in your life? Is Christ Jesus, the knowledge that you find of him in the scriptures, just a, a hazy shadow to you? Or have you cried out to him from the depths of your heart, just like Brian Bartimaeus, and have cast yourself into his, his merciful lap? True confession is a needy confession. Six, we have before us an obedient confession. So the confession of Bartimaeus comes from, the, from his heart. He's needy. But we see in our text that this confession does not only affect his heart. We see in the text of Scripture that this was a confession of obedience, meaning that Bartimaeus, when he confessed Jesus, subjected his life to Jesus. And so we see in our text, Jesus, Bartimaeus receives the attention of Jesus. And, and Jesus speaks to Bartimaeus. He says, Verse 52, go your way, your faith has made you well. So here's Bartimaeus, he's blind, he comes to Jesus because he wants sight, he gets sight from Jesus, and you can imagine the scene for, for Bartimaeus, he's blind, but now he can see the, the world is opened up before him. Think about all the things that he was waiting to do. But blind Bartimaeus, when he received his sight, understood that there was something greater before him. Before him stood the long-promised son of David. And so what does Bartimaeus do? Well, Mark records in verse 52. And immediately he recovered his sight and did what? And he followed him on the way. These are so important words to, to, get, to get in our minds. The Lord Jesus called to his disciples, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus called to the rich man as he loved him, sell all that you have and do what? Follow me. And here's Bartimaeus. He gets his sight back. He's got so many things to look at and explore, but he's concerned about one thing, following Jesus. And this is what true confession is all about. Confession is not ultimately an act of the mouth, but it's an act of the will exerting its force over our whole being. 
It's an act where we dedicate ourselves, consecrate ourselves to obedience to Jesus in all phases of our lives. It is an act where we take up our crosses and follow Jesus. It is an act where we present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. What we see is true confession claims and seizes the whole of our lives. Bartimaeus received his sight and he did what? Well, he followed Jesus on his way. Mark is holding up to us with these last-minute instructions before we enter into Jerusalem, the standard of discipleship, the standard of confession. And he's asking us as we enter into Jerusalem, do you really confess Jesus with your mouth? Is this actually a true confession? Are you confessing Jesus rightly? Because if you do so, you're going to be a disciple like blind Bartimaeus. You're going to be a disciple who follows Jesus on the way. And so here we are again. We've been traveling down this path and we've been receiving the news about Jesus again and again and again. And what has Mark done for us this morning? Well, he's given us another stone to travel on. Jesus is the son of David. And when we enter into Jerusalem with Jesus, we will learn exactly what it means for Jesus to be this king of Israel. But before we leave this story, we can ask, well, what does it, what does it mean what does this story mean for us? We can ask, well, what should I be doing with this story? We can go back to the, the little illustration we've been using this morning. This answer is very simple. What should we do with this story? Well, we must step on the stone. Or we can rephrase it a bit differently. We, can, we must place all of our weight on this stone, and we must take this stone and let it propel us down the, the path of salvation. We must take to heart this stone and and believe the news that the stone tells us. For the stone is leading us to salvation. It's leading us to know Christ Jesus. And it's teaching us how to confess him. And so as we consider this story of blind Bartimaeus, we have to feel the weight of confession. We've heard the New Testament speak about confession. Paul ties right confession to salvation. Peter in the book of Acts ties right confession to salvation. And so the question that stands at the end of the sermon is, have you confessed Jesus Christ rightly? Have you confessed Jesus Christ rightly? Have you confessed Jesus with humility? Have you confessed Jesus in the neediness of heart? Have you confessed Jesus obediently? Have you confessed Jesus scripturally? When we listen to the New Testament, we're convicted this is the only thing that matters. Have you confessed Jesus Christ rightly? May we leave today, like blind Mortimaeus, after receiving his sight, following Jesus on the way, proclaiming Jesus, Son of David. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for this manual on confession. We need it. Father, we pray that your word would do its work in our hearts, that we would treasure up these words about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, and that we would be moved, that we would be moved in light of this knowledge to cry out with blind Bartimaeus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
Father, we ask, do this for us, we pray. Amen.